are listening to The Cooler Ring, a podcast made for manufacturing marketers. Here are Carmen Perry and Jeff White. Welcome to The Cooler Ring. My name is Jeff White. Joining me today is Carmen Perry. And Carmen, I'm really excited about our guest today. Uh, you know, she's a bit of an OG in the uh, social media and content marketing space, and uh, we're really, really glad to have her. Man, that is a, a great reference, too, given that uh, Canada has just uh, entered into uh, uh, legal recreational cannabis in the last little while. <laughs> and uh, and you come out with an OG reference in yeah. the podcast. So I, I like it. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, look, I, I, I'm, yeah, I'm, in, I'm incredibly excited. I think, we, you know, I... I I just, uh, it, it's rare that we get a chance to uh, speak uh, with someone who has uh, such a, a long track record in the space and is uh, still very much working in the middle of the thick of it. So mm. please introduce without further ado. Yeah. Joining us today is Amber Nasland. Amber is the senior content marketing evangelist at LinkedIn as well, has a history in the not-for-profit space and uh you know, a little company that we uh, certainly knew of around these parts uh, called Radiant Six that was sold to Salesforce for a many million dollar deal back in the day. And uh, welcome, Amber. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. It, uh, you know, it's probably been a little while since Radiant Six has come up in an introduction, but um, <laughs> you know, that just tells you where you're, you know, the, the East Coast Canada coming out in us. Yeah, for sure. Well, you were one of the <clears throat> one of the early customers of Radiant Six, if I recall correctly, were you not? Yeah, yeah. Although I can take no credit for the multi million dollar exit and none of the benefit either. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that was a super that was a super fun ride. I joke a lot. I've worked for three Canadian companies now. Um, so I talk a lot about the fact that I'm virtually adopted Canadian. Um, but that's how you get a passport actually. <laughs> I should just try that next time when I'm uh, going through customs. So uh, I find when I, uh, when I'm working a lot with folks, uh, from certain parts of the States, I start like the, the y'all enters my <laughs> vocabulary. So you find that you just start with the, the A's okay. every once in a while now? You know, even even more subtle than that, I after working with Canadian companies and customers for so long, I started rounding my OU diphthongs. So when I said things like house, it came out as house. Um, and I'm doing like very Canadian inflections on things. The longer I spent up there, the worse it was getting to the point where people in Chicago were like, what are you doing with your spare time? You sound strange. I, I, I'm one of those Canadians that I just don't hear this OU thing that you guys make fun of us for. So I'm like completely oblivious to it. Um, Unless you go really far with like Hughes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right, that's not what we're here to talk about, though. Although I, I really feel like we've strengthened the connection between the, our countries here in the first moments of our. Oh, country. like I said, I'm for sure like adopted Canadian, so you guys are like my second family. Awesome, <laughs> awesome. Well, look, uh, we're welcome to have we're we're, we're uh, happy to have you back in the, you. in the family for the next little while here. Let's um, let, let's get started. I. I it's funny because um, uh, a good friend of mine uh, is fond of saying that content marketing died a couple of minutes after it was born because it was all content and no insight. Um, what do you say to that? Mm. Um, content marketing didn't die. 
Um, but what happens as with anything, when it gains traction in a business marketplace, uh, you are challenged to find the signal amongst the noise. So I think that when lots of companies decided that they needed to do content marketing and lots of individuals for that matter, um, you know, frankly, I don't think content marketing uh, in air quotes is any different than the marketing we've been doing for many years. Uh, but we, we gave a name to some of the tools and strategies that we've been using, hopefully most of us for a really long time. But so I don't think it's dead, nor is it dying, nor is it going anywhere. But its prevalence uh, has fostered this culture of treating it like it's a shortcut. So if I can crank out a white paper or if I can um, make a brochure-y, PDF-y feeling thing and call it content marketing when it's really a thinly veiled product pitch or when there's nothing really of substance in the asset itself it for sure devalues what content marketing is overall. And, uh, you know, the skeptics then have a lot to say about that because uh, they're not wrong that it's noisy and there's not, they're not wrong that there's some pretty mediocre, if not downright awful content out there. But that doesn't mean that content marketing as a discipline isn't legitimate. Uh, it just means it's a beholden to all of us as digital marketers to spend time learning how to do it well. Um, versus just trying to use it as a panacea uh, to under the guise of demand generation or you know whatever we want to call it these days. Well, I want I, I, it begs the question then. I, I guess uh, start pushing us. Where do, how how ought our listeners be doing it better? Um, what what is the I mean, given that we, we kind of know the state of B2B content marketing today, I think in some ways you just summarized it quite nicely. Um, and I do think that you've hit on the challenge there that there, um, you know, the, 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 there's, a, there's, a, there's a requirement for us to, uh, to up the quality. What does that look like? It starts with putting the, your customer's challenges at the center of your content rather than your own promotional marketing or whatnot messages. I think as marketers, we get quite myopic around needing our key messages front and center or making sure we write our content with the value proposition front and center. But the mistake we make is that value is in the eye of the beholder, which is ultimately our prospects and customers. So great content starts um, by asking what are our prospects and customers challenged by? And how can we be helpful and useful through our content, first and foremost? And that sounds overly simple, but I could give you dozens of examples of, you know, that, that content that your friend was referring to that's um, the really overly promotional, not a lot of substance stuff, because the marketers start with their own needs and wants in mind instead of those of their customers. And it's a really uncomfortable feeling for a lot of people in business because they think, well, I'm giving away the farm by creating content around what I know and what my expertise is. And that's what I want my customers to pay for. But the reality is that in a world where as much as 80% of a B2B buying decision is made before 
a prospect or customer ever initiates contact with a human at a business, they are researching continuously. They're spending time asking people um, that they know for recommendations. They're doing research on the web. And content should serve as the backbone for answering the questions that they have in that research process, which, again, is not just about us making sure we get our key messages and value prop front and center. It's how can we help be helpful and useful to the people we're trying to serve. Um, And it's a bit of a change of ethos for a lot of companies, but it's the one that separates good content from bad. It's interesting because, I mean, basically, that's the same message that we've been hearing since, you know, the Clue Train Manifesto or Scoble's yeah. early book or any of those things is that it should hurt yeah. to put stuff out there. Um, you mentioned that you've seen some some great examples. Uh, can, can you talk us through a few? Yeah, sure. Um, so in the B2B space, I actually, one of the companies that does this brilliantly is EY, um, formerly known as Ernst & Young. Um, they're, you know, kind of in the professional services space, a pretty staid industry. Uh, But they do an amazing job of producing high-quality, well-thought content that really gets at the nitty-gritty of what some of their customers are struggling with in their business. Um, And even more interestingly than the substance of the content, they've done a great job of making it very digestible. So the branding is still there. It's clear. It's front and center. You always recognize that it's their stuff. But the, the language is very accessible and digestible. Um, They're good at breaking content into really snackable pieces. So sharing quick hit insights or doing short little videos, uh, or if they're doing a downloadable type asset, it's not a 47 page white paper. It's a two page um, quick start checklist uh, that can lead to some deeper discussions if people are interested in longer form content, but they do a really great job of kind of pulling their potential customers through a journey supported by content, depending on where they are in that purchase cycle. So you'll see lots of stuff that's about brand awareness um, and engaging their customer base and not just about fill out a form, give me all your personally identifiable information, email addresses, social security numbers, whatever, um, to capture quote unquote the lead uh, they do a lot at the top of the funnel versus just the bottom of the funnel. So I think it's a really, I refer to them a lot in my workshops because I think they've got a really good handle on how to do it right. I can't help but wonder if they're, how that is translating at the bottom of funnel for them. Um, is it the is it the fact that, um, you know, do they know if it is or isn't a number one? And um uh, which I, I guess would be one question, and then, um, and, and then can a, a brand of that size and scale perhaps afford to be a bit more patient than many others can? Uh, I, I can't speak to their results because I don't work with them directly, so I can't tell you how they define success or whether they're hitting those numbers. Um, to me, evidence that they're probably on the right track is that they keep doing it. So. Um, hopefully, somebody who's in the driver's seat isn't continuing to throw good money after bad and um, produce things that aren't delivering some sort of results for them. So if you're, the per- you're listening to this podcast and you're the person at E&Y <laughs> responsible for this, please get in touch and let oh, us know. Let us know. Um, but you know, there's also more than one way to define success. So lots of B2B companies think in terms of demand gen or um, lead generation because 
that's what we can easily measure. You know, if I can count the number of leads that come through and become marketing qualified leads or sales qualified leads, uh, that's a pretty tangible metric. And it's harder to measure stuff that's a little bit more qualitative, a little bit more um, squishy, kind of top of funnel stuff. And there's still ways to do that. But, um, you know, as I'm often fond of saying, like measuring success and results with content marketing in itself is an investment. It requires um, some pretty significant infrastructure sometimes and technology to help you um, tag content, track content, um, you know, deploying enough analytics and code on your website to be able to track people both on and off your website. So uh, I, I don't think I don't think there's only one way to define success, and it's not necessarily a uh, always a lead play. Um, and I, I find companies sometimes who, to them, a conversion is a lot more about capturing somebody on an owned data on, on an owned list. Like getting their email address is considered successful because then they have them as a captive audience. So I think it behooves all of us to make sure that we're constantly pushing our thinking around the definitions of what successful content marketing looks like um, beyond just, did I get this person to enter my system as a lead? Um, Is there something else that I can do that's valuable to them that also quantifies success? It's interesting because, of course, I mean, yes, those metrics are more easily measured, but they're also more readily valued by senior management and therefore uh, more likely to help marketers capture budget and you know, and get more done. So, I mean, I, in some ways, it seems awfully natural to me that they're um, that 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 people tend to try to get there if they can. Although I I I have some uh, I guess I can uh, I understand where you're going with this. I mean, and I agree with you that I think there's some um, benefit to considering the other aspects of it, um, and, uh, and 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 maybe you know, pieces that aren't uh, quite as tangible. What advice would you give to, to marketers to h- how might they rethink uh, their content performance? And do you have any advice as to how they may sell that rethinking to senior leadership that might sound a little bit suspicious? Um, well, one of the things that I am fond of citing in some of the data that we have here at LinkedIn, now granted it's specific to some of our um, kind of tools, so I want to caveat that, but um, the what's interesting is customers in our ecosystem, people who are members on LinkedIn who are consuming and reading content, um, if they are only exposed to updates or posts or advertising that is focused on capturing information and lead generation type activities, um, they convert at a certain rate. And if they are exposed to both conversion level and bottom of funnel content, as well as closer to the top of funnel kind of ambient brand awareness, um, kind of more reputational content or thought leadership content or things that are uh, more long-term thinking versus um, transactional thinking, those people are actually more likely to convert at many times over the rate when they eventually get to uh, a piece of demand gen content. So the the takeaway there is that 100% of your prospects and customers go through the entire journey of not knowing you, 
initially hearing about you and then gradually taking steps closer to you when they become a customer. So every single customer you've ever had at some point started off not knowing who you were. And making sure that we're nurturing people with smart, useful, helpful content at every stage of the cycle ultimately benefits that bottom line. So yes, of course, like we're marketers are in the job of helping to accelerate and amplify sales if we do it well. So not disputing that we need to show, show me the money, right? (laughs) Where does that come from? But that money doesn't just appear out of thin air. All of those people at every stage of the, of the process are gathering information and we're selling ourselves and our content, frankly, short if we're only thinking about it in terms of conversion, because there's so much work we need to do in those earlier stages of the buying process that needs support and education. So I would much rather be the sales guy who gets to talk to a customer that's that's consumed 15 pieces of really educational content. They're better qualified, they're better educated, they're better informed. um, And I'm much more likely to make a sale versus somebody who's only ever downloaded a white paper and immediately got a phone call. So I think we're doing our sales teams a disservice if we don't think about delivering content from top to bottom on the funnel um, and not just focused on demand gen. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. And I I really can't help but think that there's this curse of measurement, you know, that the ability to uh, basically the ability to close the loop in these analytics and to prove whether something's working or not um, leads people um, to just be a little too navel gazy and to, to, you know, they just don't look up and, um, and, and, and think about that, uh, broader, uh, buyer life cycle and how that journey actually happens. Um, it, it seems like we're, because the, 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 the measurement so, uh, is just so, so in your face all the time. I think marketers are feeling a lot of pressure, uh, to deliver on on those numbers, and and it's it's leading to a lot of short sightedness. I I think you've you've really hit the nail on the head with what you just said. Yeah, I think so too. And uh, Amber, you wrote a post. I think it was earlier this year um, on LinkedIn about in terms of the sales side of things and and the idea of reaching the right people at the right time. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just said now, you know, it'd be much better if all of your salespeople only reached out after someone had consumed, you know, a dozen or more pieces of their content. Um, obviously, not always possible to know who's reading what and when. Um, but the, the other thing you mentioned in that post was that, you know, rather than being cutesy or um, otherwise skirting around the issue, you know, you should just be honest. Um, can you talk a bit about, I mean, especially given your position within LinkedIn, which is you know, really turned into a real sales outreach and uh, communication platform that way. Can you talk about how content can be used from a sales perspective? I, I think one of the largest disconnects in many B2B organizations today is between marketing and sales. And I've heard um, statistics, of course, of, of which I'm not going to remember the source, but um, that as, as much as 80% of the content that marketing creates is never touched or used by sales. Um, which is heartbreaking as a marketer who is so focused on wanting to build and deliver great, useful content. Um, the, the, the sort of obvious but not obvious answer to me is I feel like we need to do a better job inside our own organizations 
getting marketing and sales to have conversations. Um, you know, marketing, we love doing things like market research or brand studies or surveys um, and building buyer personas and mapping customer journeys. And meanwhile, the people who are sitting with our customers every single day are our salespeople. And I don't think we tap them enough as a resource for what kind of content is going to be useful for them. Um, and how can we help remove some of the friction between them and their prospective customers to accelerate that buying process and help them answer the relevant questions or tackle the, the challenges that come up in their conversations really often. So I think it's, it's simple but not easy in that we need to better um, align what marketing is doing with content to what sales actually needs when they get to the point where we hand off a lead and they start to talk to that person, can I give them content that helps them in that process? And moreover, what am I, what are we missing? So when they've got a prospect that comes to them and they're having a, a, an early stage sales conversation, an exploratory conversation, what questions are they being asked in that moment? Because that should inform the very top funnel early buying cycle content that we create, if we can anticipate those questions and answer them before they ever get to a conversation with a salesperson, we make everybody's job easier. The customer is smarter and better informed. We take out some of the challenges and objections that they're going to have in the process. And we allow our salespeople to step into the role of truly being advisory and consultative rather than having to educate and inform all the time. You're listening to The Cooler Ring, conversations on manufacturing marketing. Don't forget to subscribe now at coolapartners.com slash thecoolering. That's K-U-L-A-partners.com slash thecoolering. And look, so so often I think that that uh, divide between marketing and sales that, uh, that builds up and, and we see it a lot of manufacturing organizations where... You know the, the people on the ground and uh, in an outside sales team think that the people back at head office in marketing have their collective heads up their arses mm-hmm. and just don't get it. Um, uh, they they don't understand the reality of it, and then and then they they basically you know when the conversations get really hostile, they everything just boils down to probably price at, at that point. They don't we don't need any content from marketing. We don't need any anything from you. We just need better pricing on our product. The only objection you know? is cost. Yeah, uh, otherwise we've got this nailed. And and I but I I have that's that's kind of the dimmest view of it probably. But I I, I would say that I've. I've seen, um, you know, there's, if, if the, the folks I speak with are any indication, I feel like it's turning a bit. Um, and, and there are at least enough uh, people in the sales organization that are maybe of a younger vintage that are open to the notion of how content can help in the sales process. It's maybe getting a little easier to find those, um, those champions in sales organizations that can help uh, bridge that divide. And I think marketers, frankly, need to be aware that maybe they don't get it sometimes. Like, mm-hmm. you know, until you've sold something, um, you know, it can be hard to truly you know, know what that feeling is like. You know, I, I say this is a, somebody who's probably more of a sales guy often than a marketer. And I, I, um, 
it, you know, they're, they're just very different disciplines. <laughs> they are. And I, you know, I, I'm always encouraging the teams that I work with to spend time with the salespeople in their trenches, shadow phone calls, go to meetings, be more customer facing. Um, somehow in the marketing discipline, we took ourselves away from that kind of customer facing role. And I think that's changing a little bit um, thanks to the digital world and uh, marketers being so much closer to, to customers thanks to the internet. But I, I, I still think that it's pretty it's pretty low tech and old school, but like go sit with a sales guy and sit in his sales conversations so that you can hear the questions that come up. You can hear where he uh, or she struggles in a conversation or where they come up against objections that they can't answer or handle. Um, Because I think it makes us all better marketers to make sure that we're staying in touch with the real world um, opportunities and challenges that our sales departments are dealing with. Uh, but it also opens lines of communication where they learn to trust that we have their best interests in mind um, rather than just creating a bunch of puff pieces um, or fancy branding uh, that we're really in the business of helping them make them better at their jobs. And, you know, sales enablement is a function that's sort of risen in in importance in B2B organizations in the last five to 10 years. Uh, and I would like to see that continue because I feel like the bridge we need is to not just to use content as a marketing tool, but to use it as a sales enablement function um, and very thoughtfully and carefully help our sales teams understand what, con- don't just throw them an intranet site and hope that they can fend for themselves. You know, let's have, let's sit down with them and map the content that we have available for them to the journey that their prospects go through um, and help fill the gaps when we have them. Uh, it's a really worthwhile effort. And I think, you know, going back full circle to talking all about ROI and making sure that we're delivering results, um, nothing speaks more loudly than money. And if our salespeople come to the fray and say, we could not have closed this deal without marketing's help with this content, um, suddenly those budgets get a lot easier to secure. There's no question. I think that, that um, that's an encouraging uh, vision for any marketer to have as they're uh, imagining, uh, as they're kind of staring down the barrel of a hostile relationship potentially is to say, what happens if you do indeed turn it around? Because the, those organizations are often, uh, the, you know, the, the sales teams do carry a lot of weight um, uh, and, and influence, as you, as you say. And it's funny, as you were, were speaking, I, I kind of had my... I was kind of remembering to some of my early marketing gigs, and I was thinking to myself, how much would it have they, would my performance there have improved had I maybe just went out and did a couple of cold calls, actually tried to be a salesperson for a day and had a few doors slammed in my face or something? It would have yeah. been, I, I bet I would have had a different view of things. Yeah. Humbling, if nothing else. It's for sure. I think, you know, if you think back to the, like, the early, early days of my career, I was actually a professional fundraiser. Um, so my nonprofit world was raising money for nonprofits and there's a lot of no in there and there's a lot of need to tell a compelling story, make a compelling case. And again, this was before we called it content marketing, but we were having to be real scrappy because in most nonprofits, um, you know, the marketing and development organizations are one in the same. Some, most of us didn't have budgets for separate marketing functions. So we had to get real good about creating the kinds of informative and educational and inspirational content that would propel our donors to want to make a case. But there's nothing more humbling than asking people for money and being told no. 
Uh, and man, you know, marketers don't get that a lot, but I think it would do all of us a little bit of good to try it. Yeah, it. Uh, I will say this: I'm, I've done a bit of the fundraising myself. So, for anybody that listening that looking for advice, my only advice is that never insult somebody by only asking them for money once. If they've given you money once, they'll give it to you again. You just need to ask them again. But anyway, that's all. That, that's that's not necessarily relevant, of course. That's very true. And I also learned that don't um, don't ever underestimate somebody's capacity to give. So. Um, it, you know, don't ask them for 50 bucks if they really want to give you 50,000. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Assume they're loaded. Exactly. Uh, yeah, let them tell you they're not. Everybody likes yeah. to feel flattered that you think that they're super rich and famous. Um, so it's yeah. easier for them to say, I'm sorry, that's out of my reach versus like, why did you only ask me for a hundred dollars? I really <laughs> like the way this, uh, this podcast has meandered. I mean, we've delivered value to a number of non-traditional audience segments, <laughs> uh, including fundraisers uh, slash marketing uh, teams for a not-for-profit. So I think this is great. Covering lots of the bases. Amber, I, I wonder um, in your experience with LinkedIn, um, you know, what, what are you seeing coming up that looks really interesting? Um, gosh, where to start? Um, you know, I, I'm going to, I always think these questions are fun when it's like, hey, what's next? Um, and what's going to what's gonna be the big new thing? Um, because I'm not going to tell you anything you probably don't already know. Um, but unsurprisingly, video is still something that's very prevalent and prominent and performs really well, especially on our platform. Um, we introduced native video uh, last year and it has really become a staple um, of the the ecosystem of content on LinkedIn. Uh, and people, people love to be able to just watch something or listen to it in the background um, while they're multitasking. Uh, so video content performs really well because it's something that people is, it feels accessible. It feels easy. And uh, we, that doesn't mean necessarily like high production quality. We see incredible success with some very scrappy content creators who are doing, you know, selfie videos on their phone um, or people hanging out in their cars, like with little thought snippets. Um, the head of our marketing solutions division, um, Henry Price decides that he does, he does walking to work videos um, in New York city while he's walking and, these little kind of thought starter things. So video is not going anywhere. And I know we've been beating that drum for a long time, but um, Cisco's predicted that by next year, uh, over 80% of web traffic is going to go to video content. And if you've been paying attention to what you see in the news, Netflix now captures 15% of all internet traffic. So, which is crazy. Um, but it tells you that there's a real appetite for that kind of multimedia content. Uh, and I often hear the fallacy of, you know, there's people have no attention spans or they have the attention spans of goldfish and there could not be uh, less accuracy in that statement because anybody who's been binge watched a Netflix show over the weekend, um, we have plenty of attention to give. Uh, the, the issue is that we have to earn um, what is a finite resource for people. Uh, so, Things like video or even podcasting like this, um, multimedia content that serves a lot of different uh, tastes is not going anywhere anytime soon. And it, I'm always encouraging companies to think about more than just text media when they think about their content strategy. 
And my guess is that's a pretty good example of a higher, uh, more up funnel content that uh, you're seeing perform well in tandem with uh, something more conversion focused and down. Yeah, correct. So video is a great top of funnel tactic. Um, and oftentimes, you know, it's it, like if you're an SEO person, it's probably not a big link builder, but it's a great traffic builder. So um, it's a great way to spread messages far and wide, capture new eyeballs, um, get more acquainted with people. Um, the term I use a lot is creating magnetic content. And what I mean by that is content that draws people in and invites them to take a step closer in their relationship with you rather than just, um, you know, catching them in your tractor beam of lead generation and then pummeling them with email marketing until they relent. Um, you know, maybe. That sounds all right. <laughs> you know, it sounds dirty when you put it that way. Yeah. Well, it doesn't have to be all bad. No, it doesn't have to be all bad, but it is something that um, I think we can learn from. Um, and I'm actually still, very, I'm super bullish about email marketing. I think it has a really strong place in, in B2B marketing. Um, but the more content that we can create that is inviting and interesting and draws people and invites them in rather than sort of, um, handcuffs them to our email list, I think the better, um, because then when people opt in, they're for real in and they want to be there and they're present rather than begrudgingly giving over their email address. Cause all they wanted was the research report. Um, and then you find, you know, bounce rates and opt outs, uh, at a much higher rate than you would if you were, um, more mindful about creating early funnel stuff that is engaging and interesting. Interesting. So would, would you almost say that content going back to our initial point that content marketing isn't dead, but potentially inbound gated content might be? Yeah. Or I think it's at least worth a revisit. Um, you know, LinkedIn itself has been doing some pretty thoughtful rearranging of even the content that our marketing teams gate or don't gate. And um, I'm seeing quite a movement toward companies who've historically gated everything because it felt like the way to capture data and, and therefore prove that what we were doing was working. Um, I'm seeing a resurgence of ungated content and the case for um, creating less friction uh, at the earlier stages of somebody's relationship with you so that you're inviting them to consume content, no strings attached, so that by the time they do get to something that's more opt-in related, um, they're feeling very good about that relationship rather than feeling um, a little bit nervous about handing over something like their email address. I'm just going to say it though. I mean, what I've seen in tandem with that is that people saying, okay, we're going we're gonna to ungate our content, but then we're going to just litter our site with annoying chat bots that pop up every five seconds and try to convert you that way. And if, you know, if I could just put a bullet in every one of those damn chat bots to just annoy that experience. Yeah. And maybe this is a personal problem, um, and, and I'm the only... But you see what I mean? I, I don't know. I, 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 I do think that there's some, um, some wisdom in not... Uh, I, I guess in not just uh, taking a... Uh, a five-year-ago approach to how you gate content and, and, um, and being smarter about it. Um, I just hope that not everybody thinks that the, uh, you know, the, 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 that that's just a, a way to allow you to, to put these other annoyances out there. Well, I think, you know, chatbots are going through that, um, that early uh, romanticism that maybe social media did uh, back in 2007 or 2008 um, 
you might remember companies who like had their Twitter feed right on their homepage because that was the cool thing to do. I think I wrote a few of those websites. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like, um, so I think everybody, I think that's actually sort of the danger of focusing too much on what's new, what's next, what's trendy. Because frankly, in the B2B space, I think we have a lot of work to do um, to do a good job with the tools we already have rather than trying to jump all over the latest and greatest thing in the quest to be ever so innovative. Um, to your point, you know, something that feels innovative to a marketer can feel really invasive and annoying to a customer. So finding the, the threading that needle and making sure that you've got a real good sense of what, um, what your customers do and don't, don't want and um, not just jumping on the shiny object because, you know, somebody in Wired Magazine said chat chatbots are the future. I don't know if you timed that little intrusion ding or not yep. to be right in perfect. keeping with <laughs> your point on interruption, but I think we need to leave it there. That's like, it's not going to get any better than that. And we need to George Costanza this and end on a yeah, high so note. funny. And I thought I had totally turned off all the things that were dinging at me and it's impossible. You can't turn them off. There's too many. There are too many. And it's so easy to forget that like, God, how you have multiple tabs or applications open or you forget to silence your phone. And then you're like, what is dinging at me? I don't know. How- I turned it all off. But <laughs> no, I didn't. Amber, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you today. Thanks so much for taking the time. Uh, and wish you the best of luck uh, in your uh, in your role at LinkedIn. It's been uh, it's been great to get your insight today. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, guys. It's been a really fun conversation. I appreciate it. Chat soon, and you're welcome to Canada anytime. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't hear a single A though. No, you know, I don't think we got that. We'll in put there. those in in post. <laughs> yeah, no, we'll add <laughs> I'll try harder next time. Please do. Thank, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Cooler Ring with Carmen Perry and Jeff White. Don't miss a single manufacturing marketing insight. Subscribe now at coolapartners.com slash the cooler ring. That's K-U-L-A partners.com slash the cooler ring.